Please return uh, your seats. And a good afternoon to all of us. Let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And we'll commence reading from verse 12 to the end, uh, rather to verse 18. Verse 12 through to verse 18. The Bible reads, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We continue in our study through the book of James, and uh, the book of James shows us that true faith shows itself in practical, godly living. True faith shows itself in practical, godly living. And that those uh, practicalities of godly living are seen in how we respond or we are responding to events that come into our lives, whether good or bad, negative or positive. And therefore, we, 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 as we go through the book, we really need to pray that God helps us, that as we live our Christian lives, we will be practical. And our living our Christian life in a practical way must show forth godliness in our lives. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, we considered verse 12. And in that verse, we, 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 we learned together that true faith perseveres under trials. True faith perseveres under trials. And we saw that the reason why true faith perseveres under trials, it's because it is rooted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit helps us in those times to be able to endure these trials. We also say that we are not in any way minimizing the pain or the impact of those trials. But we say that the reason it perseveres is because it's rooted in the person and the finished work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. This afternoon we come to verse 13 through to verse 15. And here, James is showing us that true faith does not blame God for temptation. True faith does not blame God for temptation. James is, in, is interested to help us understand that when we are being tempted, and this temptation, as he himself says, it's a temptation to evil. No one should assume that that enticement to sin comes from God. That enticement to, to sin comes from God. In John, rather, in James' mind, he's saying, we must not think like that. Because God has clearly said in his word, he's holy. And therefore, he cannot go against his word, against his nature, and entice someone to sin against him. James wants us not to even entertain the thought of blaming God for temptation to evil. He's saying, you need to pause. Ask yourself, who is this God? What has he said about himself? And then respond accordingly as he has revealed to himself. And so such thoughts should slowly melt our hearts before we conclude or say that God is tempting us to sin. And so I want us to open those three verses and draw lessons for ourselves this afternoon. The first thing obviously we see is that true faith blames not God. True faith does not blame God. It blames not God. And this is the first part of verse 13. Verse 13a. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. And so James, as I've said, he's, he, he declares to us from the onset that no one should assume that enticement to sin comes from God. Enti no one should assume that enticement to sin comes from God. He says, let no one say when he's being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now I said when we considered verse 2 through to verse 4 that the Greek word used there for uh, temptation, trials and testing, it's a Greek word pyrasmos which is a word that has, can mean temptation, can mean testing, can also mean trial. It is a word that refers to an outward circumstance of a trial or a temptation. And so this word pyrasmos has the basic meaning of being tried, being tested, or 
proving something. And it can have both a positive and a negative connotation depending on the text or in the, the passage in which it's being used. Now, clearly, in, in, in James' case, it's used differently by the same word, but it's the context that determines. In verse 12, the word is used in the sense of trial or testing. When he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so clearly in James' mind, he's saying, whether you're going through a trial or a test, or even a, a temptation, the bottom line is the context helps you to know whether this is a temptation to sin or it's simply a test that God is trying to prove the genuineness of your faith. In our passage, verse 13 through to verse 15, the idea is clearly that of temptation, solicitation to evil. That's how James is using that term. It's an enticement to evil. And you can see the meaning is indicated by the words in verse 13. When I'm being, no, let no one say, I'm, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. In the last part, for God cannot tempt with evil. And then in verse 14, again, you see where James is saying, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Other versions even say his own evil desire. And then in verse 15, the then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so clearly here, James is saying that testing or that trial that leads to sin is not from God. It should not even be associated with God because God cannot tempt you to sin or entice you to disobey him. That's what James is really saying here. And so he's saying that even though the word in Greek is the same, the context, and the context in this passage is an enticement to sin against God. And so James violently opposes the inexcusable idea of blaming God for sin, or even for being tempted to sin. James is actually saying, let no one, when he's being tempted, say, God is tempting me. In James' mind, the very idea of blaming God for sin or temptation to sin is an abomination. He's saying, let no one even entertain the thought. Let no one even say God is indirectly or directly tempting me to sin. 
Now, as James is writing, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And, the, and as he's writing, they had their own background, their own context, their own way of thinking. And the Jewish thought was that every man was pulled into uh, two directions. And so they arrived at the doctrine that every man had two tendencies. There was the, the good tendency and the bad tendency. And so they, 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 they had phrases like uh, Yetsa Hatub, which means the good tendency, or Yetsa Hara, that's the evil tendency. Now, this did not really solve their problem or even explain it. They simply say there are two tendencies. There's an evil tendency and there's a, there's a good tendency. And now, in trying to resolve that problem, some rabbis, a group of rabbis, even took a bold and dangerous step by, by arguing that since God created everything, I mean everything, he must have created evil, therefore he must have created the evil tendency in man. Now obviously that was very dangerous. Because when you analyze that teaching, it narrows down to blaming God for our own personal sin. It's really blaming God for creating that evil tendency which will basically respond in an evil way. And so as James is writing, he also has that in mind and is trying to show them that no one should even entertain the thought that the God who says is holy can tempt us to sin against him. It just doesn't reconcile itself with the truth of the scriptures. A Scottish poet by the name of Robert Burns wrote, and I quote, Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong. And listening to their witching voice has often led, led me wrong. Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong. And listening to their witching voices has often led me wrong. Now what Robert Burns is really saying is that his conduct was so because God made him that way. He's just kind of saying, you know that you formed me with wild passions. And these wild passions are so strong. And so if I act in that way, I'm simply responding to the way you have created me. 
So it's basically saying, my conduct is this because God made me this way. And therefore, I'm blaming God for every wild passion in me. And so we see that from the very beginning of time or human history, man has always blamed others. Man's first instinct is to blame others for his own sin. Adam in the Garden of Eve, rather in the Garden of Eden, blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. In fact, when you read Genesis 3, Adam is indirectly blaming God. He's basically saying, when God asked Adam, what have you done? Did you eat from the tree I forbid you not to eat? And he said, it's the woman. The woman which you gave me, by the way. Just in case you forget, the woman you gave me. Eve, what have you done? The serpent. And so we see that from the entrance of sin into the world, man has become an expert at blaming others. And James is saying, to blame God for evil, for your enticement to evil is an abomination. God is not directly or indirectly responsible for temptation to evil. Yes, he allows trials to come, but he is not involved in the sin that the hand commits. He's sovereign in all things, yes, but he is not responsible for us to sin against him. Now granted, it's, it's, it, it's, it's very difficult for us to really try and explain to satisfy our minds as to the genealogy or the origin of sin or evil in the world. But one thing we know is that the God of the Bible is so opposed to sin that he has no part in that sin, even though he is sovereign in all things. And now James here is basically saying that if a trial comes in your life, how you respond to that trial would either lead to sin or it will lead to prove the genuineness of your faith in God. So when you respond to a trial or a testing or that temptation, and if the final outcome or final result is that you sin against God, know from the onset, that it was not God but yourself involved. If a believer responds in faithful obedience to God's word, he successfully endures a trial. If he submits to it in the flesh by disobeying God, he is tempted to sin. 
for his sins against God. And so James is really saying that true faith does not blame God for temptation. And that temptation is a temptation to sin, a temptation to evil. And he wants us to clear it in our minds. That yes, God has given us his Holy Spirit, has given us his grace, and there's no temptation that comes to us except that which is common to man. And God will not allow us what we, unable, what we cannot manage to respond to. His grace is sufficient and his, he, he gives us what he knows we are able to, to handle and he gives us in order to prove the genuineness of our faith. And now we faithfully obey his word. And so James is saying true faith does not blame God for temptation to sin. But secondly, we see that true faith acknowledges the holy character of God. It acknowledges the holy character of God. Verse 13 and the, the last half. But let's read all of it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God cannot be tempted with evil. That's a punchline to James. And he himself tempts no one. We can even say with evil. That's what James is really saying there. That when you become a Christian, the first, one of the things, apart from a hatred from, for sin, is that you slowly begin to have a healthy view, a biblical view of God. And one of the things that God reveals about himself in the scriptures, that he is a holy God. And in James' mind, he's saying, this is why temptation to evil does not come from God. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one with evil. And so, when James is writing and he says God cannot be tempted, the adjective that is being used there in, in the original language is apirastos, from the word pyramos, rasmos rather, so it is apirastos, and it is only used here in the New Testament, nowhere else, where James is saying, God cannot be tempted with evil. Cannot be tempted. And the idea that it, the, 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 the apirastos carries is the fact that the God is untemptable. There's no capacity in the being of God for temptation. 
God is unshakable to temptation, to the assaults of the evil one, to the assaults of temptation to evil. James is saying that the very nature of God makes it inherently foreign for God to be tempted with evil. The very nature of evil is a foreign concept to the being of God, to the character of God, to the attributes of God. And James is saying evil and God are too mutually exclusive in the most complete and intense sense. There's nowhere where they have a common thread or area of meeting of interest. No. The two cannot mix. Even the very idea of God mixing with evil is foreign. God and evil exist in realms that never meet. Two distinct realms that never meet. God has no exposure to evil. He's utterly secured to the assaults of evil. He cannot be lured into evil. And therefore he cannot tempt anyone into evil. His omnipotent holy will completely resists any invitation to evil. And furthermore, in God, there is no slightest moral depravity to which evil may appeal. There's no iota of evil in God that evil can take advantage or appeal to know. And so James is saying, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one with evil. His very nature is exclusively opposed to the idea of evil. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 3, when Isaiah, when Isaiah stood en engrossed before the Lord, the angelic being or beings that Isaiah saw as God revealed something of himself to Isaiah, what, they were, what were they doing? They proclaimed the thrice, the thrice holy nature of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Even those sinless creatures were careful to honor the holiness and the purity of the Lord. 
And when you read Isaiah 6, you notice the verbs that they are used there. They covered and covered. They covered their faces, covered their feet, and they flew. And clearly showing us a continuous action before God. And the sin there is the sin of constant motion at the bidding of this holy God. That even the sinless creatures of heaven, or the heavenly beings as we refer to them, cannot stand the holiness of God. They cannot comprehend, they cannot look, and therefore they cover themselves. They cover their eyes, but their ears are open to hear the tasks or the task of the master. And they're before the God of the heaven, ready to do his bidding. That's how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And James is saying, if you are a Christian and understand even a percentage of what the Bible says about this God, you cannot even have the, the, the ghast or the arrogance to attribute evil to God. Because he himself is holy. And he says, be holy, for I am holy. And so James wants us to return to a biblical view of God, so that when we find ourselves in any situation, or when we are going through a trial, or when we are going through a temptation, our focus will be on this God, and we will not accuse him of evil, but we will plead to him that he may grant us grace to pull through and honor his name. True faith acknowledges who God is, the holy character of God. When grace comes into a soul, it produces an endless desire to know God, experience God. And the grace of God breaks our distorted views of God and therefore bringing us to a point where we recognize that we cannot accuse God of tempting anyone to sin. God cannot tempt or entice anyone to sin. It's like God is saying, when we accuse God of Enticement to evil, we are basically saying God who says he's holy, who desires holiness from us, is the one who is now enticing me to disobey him. Not even our parents will do that. No parent will put rules in a home and then entice a child to break the rules. 
how much more the God of the heaven. And we need to acknowledge the character of God, who this God is. Thomas Aquinas said this about God, and I quote, We cannot grasp what God is, but only what he is not, and how other things are related to him. We cannot grasp what God is, but only what he is not, and how other things are related to him. Now, when you read church history, you find this is one of the areas that was full of debates as to the origin of evil. And Thomas Aquinas penned those words. To die simply, first of all, acknowledge that while we may not fully have an explanation as to the existence of evil or the origin of evil or the origin of sin in this world, what we need to realize is that none of us can fully understand God, can fully explain God and begin to explain who God is, what God is like, and how God who is sovereign allows evil in his world, or a God who is sovereign, and yet we live in a world that appears to be accidental in many ways. Aquinas says we cannot grasp fully God but we can only know what he is not and how all things relate to him. This is also what James is saying. That God cannot be tempted with evil and therefore he cannot tempt anyone to evil or to sin against him. So true faith acknowledges the holy character of God. And in the third place, we see that true faith accepts individual responsibility. True faith accepts individual responsibility. Verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James moves now to show the source of temptation. And he's saying the source of temptation to evil lies within man. It's seated in each one of us. And so he begins with the contrasting word, but, and say, but each person. And these words in the original language are in the present tense. And James is underscoring the truth that this temptation to, to evil is a continuous, repeated, and inescapable reality of human beings on earth. 
each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so James is saying that as long as we are on earth, this issue of temptation, this uh, enticement to sin will always be with us. It's a repeated action. It's a continuous thing. But the difference is how we respond, whether we give in and eventually allow our evil desires to give birth to sin, or we say to ourselves, how can I sin against God? And James says, but each person emphasizing the universal nature of temptation. Each person, whatever stage of life, there will be an enticement to sin against God. Each person, no person is immune. Every human being on earth is tempted. There are no exceptions. And so James personifies man's sinful desire and identifies that the, the cause of that temptation to sin is man's sinful desire. And so to James, he's saying to us, that what is responsible for sin is man's own evil desires. But each person is tempted when he is lowered and enticed by his own desire. So the term lured and the term enticed, these were terms that were used in either fishing or uh, hunting. So the term Lured was a term that was used for hunting animals. And it will refer to a bait designed to trap the desired animal. So if you want a bigger animal, you put a bigger bait so that the animal, when it is lured, it's captured. And then the word entice also is similar to lured, but was more used when it comes to fishing. It is a fishing term that shows that when, when the fisherman goes to fish, he will put a bait, he will put a worm and hides the hook. So when the fish, what the fish sees is simply a worm dangling. And in, in the fish's mind, it is so attractive, so vulnerable, and it goes for it and pounces on the worm and the hook and it swallows the hook and it's in uh, for dinner or it's someone's prey. And so what James is really saying here is like when you think of a fish or any animal, the, the traps are meant to attract something that is in their nature towards those traps. And James is saying, this is what causes us to respond the way we do, with, to respond to temptation. 
in a sinful manner. Why? Because of our evil desires. There are these evil desires in us that when this allurement, this enticement is put before us, there is something within us that begins to respond and therefore instead saying no, to that temptation, we respond because we find it attractive, we find it reasonable, we try to justify why we must go for it. And James is saying, that is what causes you to sin. Then in verse 15, you see, James changes the, uh, his, his, figure, his figure of speech from a snare to conception and birth. He's basically showing the genealogy of evil desires. And he traces the, the evil desires, three generations as it were. He says, then, des then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives, brings forth death. And so, with, in Jem's mind, there's this linear order, this straight line that shows us that sin is with our evil desires. Then we act upon them and therefore the results which is disobedience to God. And so he says that desire like a human mother gives, conceives and give birth to sin. And so in this graphic manner, James shows us how we healed to temptation and sin against God. Then sin, the child of evil desires, develops till it's fully grown, and then it's ready to produce offspring. And when it produces offsprings, it brings forth death. That's what James is saying. And so what God is really teaching us uh, from what James is saying is that when it comes to sin, sin is not an isolated act or a series of isolated events. No. Sin is as a result of a specific process. And James shows us there, it begins with alluring us, it begins with enticement, and then we respond. So it's not simply an isolated event or random event, no. Sin is brought forth to us, and we begin to admire, we begin to rationalize, and then we respond to that sin. Desire leads to deception. Deception leads to design. And design leads to disobedience. But those are the four Ds that John MacArthur gives when he looks at sin and how we are enticed. MacArthur says there's first desire. Then there's deception. Then there is design, and basically the design is how do I carry out the sin? So there is desire, there is deception, there is design, 
And then there is obedience, disobedience rather. Desire, deception, design, disobedience. And when you look at the sin of Adam and Eve, we are told in Genesis 3, Eve looked at the fruit and she began to admire. It was good to the eye. Then she designed a process and before long she disobeyed God. Isn't it true also of the sin of Achan with a Babylonian garment desired? Then there was deception, design, then disobedience. How about David's sin with Bathsheba? David saw a woman bathing. David inquired. David called the woman. David disobeyed against God. And this is what James wants us to understand. That no one simply walks out of the door and falls into sin. There are these series that can be connected and therefore the result is disobedience against God. And this is always the case that you can trace a, a sinful pattern or a yielding to temptation in a sinful manner to something in the life of a Christian. Maybe they, are, they abandon the means of grace. They abandon the reading of the scriptures. And then daily they are drinking in the filth of the world. Spending countless hours with non-Christians, whether it's at work and not having time to detox themselves with the scriptures. And as I begin to rationalize and desire that which God forbids, they forget everything that God has said in the Bible. And then when they are in sin, they begin to wonder what happened. And James is saying to us this evening, take responsibility of your actions. Don't blame your environment. Don't blame your friends. It was because of your evil desires you yielded to that temptation and sinned against God. Stop blaming everyone around you and go before God and accept that yes, it was me being negligent with the means of grace. Neglecting the assembling of God's people. Neglecting to be in the, cons in, in the company of those who can rebuke me, correct me, and instruct me. True faith accepts individual responsibility. Begin with yourself. Have you been diligent with the means of grace? 
if you've, been, if you've not been diligent with the means of grace, why are you surprised that you're in the state you are? Why are you surprised that once upon a time, the sin that you would have said no to it, you begin to desire it. You begin to, deceive by, to be deceived by it. And you begin to find ways and means of satisfying your evil desires. And therefore, you don't mind even if you disobey God. The case of David in 2 Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 11 there. Even when David was told, this woman you're inquiring about is the wife of your captain. David had reached a point where his evil desires, desires wanted her. So nothing was going to stop him. This is the wife of your faithful captain. Bring her. And when you read 2 Samuel 11, everything there is just actions. He saw, he inquired, he took, slept with her, she went back, the news returned, and she said, I'm pregnant. And then David took her and took care of her. So you could simply see that evil desires are self-centered. It's all about me, what I want, what I need. God has I've said no to this. I don't care. And when, I, when we find ourselves into sin, we begin to say, but if God is sovereign, how? How did they allow this to happen? How? I don't know what happened. You knew. The heart is a battlefield. The mind is a battlefield. Guard your heart and your mind. Saturate yourself daily with God's word so that when you are being tested, you'll be able to say, how can I sin against God in such a manner? Don't blame God. Don't hide into God's sovereignty and how he's allowed such a thing to come upon you. Accept your responsibility. Go before God. Repent of your sins and ask him to be your daily guide. Let him grow you. Let him cause you to have a desire to be in the company of godly Christians. True faith does not blame God for temptations. It acknowledges temptations and praise that God grants grace to endure those temptations for his glory. The hymn we'll be singing in closing is a, is a song that 
We sing with the Eagles Nest School every Friday when we meet, when we're having devotions. It's, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God, I stand. And I will praise you, Lord. I will praise you for all that you've done. Why? Because there's a joy that knows no limit. There's a light in my spirit that keeps on growing. And here in the grace of God, I will stand. And all that this would be true of all of us. We live in a world that is against God. Throwing all kinds of things on us enticing us to sin against God. Oh, that we may sing that song. I am a new creation, and I will praise you, Lord, for all that you have done. Because my joy knows no limit. I don't need to heal to sin in order to enjoy, because I know sin may bring happiness, Rather, it may bring pleasure, but it will never bring happiness. It may bring pleasure, but it will never bring happiness. True happiness is in God, serving God, living for God, and worshiping God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you forgive us of our sins. Because many are the times we've directly and indirectly blamed you for temptation to sin. We have questioned your sovereignty. We have questioned your, your will. We have questioned your goodness. And in the midst of all these questionings, we run away from individual responsibilities. Lord, help us to be cautious of you more than to be cautious of the consequences of our sins. That when we yield to temptation and sin against you, that we may come before you, make things right with you in repentance and confession, and live with the consequences of our decisions to the praise and honor of your name. True faith shows itself in practical godly living. And in solidarity as a church, we ask that you forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of those times we've questioned your wisdom and we've indirectly or sometimes arrogantly, directly blamed you for our circumstances. May the book of James help us to respond to trials of life with an eye of, an eye of faith and a dependence on God the Holy Spirit and a daily saturation of our minds and our hearts in the scriptures so that those around us may truly see Christ in us 
and come to know you in faith and in repentance. May these words continue to ring in our minds as we begin a week in a world that is against you. Help us to be sought and light and help us not to neglect the reading of your word, the assembling with the saints, and the worship of you. Thank you for allowing us to be in the house of worship today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.